Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Anya. And today we're discussing the fourth episode of the first season of His Dark Materials, Armor, spelled with a U because British English. You mean proper English. Sure, whatever. This episode was written by showrunner Jack Thorne. Uh, Next year, there's going to be an adaptation of The Secret Garden coming to movie theaters that uh, Jack wrote the screenplay for. So that's like his next big project. Uh, This episode was directed by Otto Bathurst. He directed the 2018 Robin Hood. Uh, If you (laughs) saw that at all, I really liked it. It's really goofy. It's got kind of like a steampunk thing going on and a lot of like superhero energy. He shoots like five arrows at once sometimes. So that's a goofy movie. Wait, like actual steampunk or like steampunk fused with Middle Ages? No, no. It's It's just steampunk. It's weird. Okay. It's a weird a weird version of Robin Hood. It has a lot of like high energy and you could kind of feel that in this episode, I think. Because Lynn Manuel Miranda joins the cast in this episode, who is an actor best known for uh the one episode that he did of How I Met Your Mother. Uh-huh. Definitely. <laughs> uh has anyone here seen Hamilton? I have. Okay. Yeah, I have I I have not. Okay. Lone holdout. I, I have not. I have not even. I I know of Hamilton, but I I don't. I haven't listened to like I haven't listened to it or anything. But I you know osmosis. I have a lot of funny stories about seeing it, but that this is neither the time nor place. But I shall simply say that we spent hundreds of dollars on those tickets. So presumably, so did everybody else there. And the dude sitting in front of me definitely fell asleep before intermission. Oh my. <sighs> This week's episode, Lee and his rabbit demon Hester, the true star of the series, arrive in Trollisund to search for an old friend, York the Armored Bear. There is no you in that armor right there. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) York the Armored Bear. After hearing a rumor that he's nearby and has been tricked out of his armor. (sighs) Meanwhile... (laughs) The Egyptians are also in Trollicent to meet with the witch's consul to send a message to Serafina Pecola asking for help. The consul confirms that the magisterium is bringing children through Trollicent to a place farther inland where they do a secret process called intercision. That sounds happy. The consul also recommends that they hire the services of the town's armored bear. Lyra and Farder Coram attempt to hire Yorick, but he says he is not for sale. Serafina's hawk demon... Kaisa 
arrives and talks to Farter Coram and John Faw, pledging Serafina's support, but warning that not all of the witches are on their side. Lyra finds Lee and asks him for help getting Yorick on their side. She uses the alethiometer to find out where the magisterium is hiding Yorick's armor and tells the bear. After a quick rampage, Yorick retrieves his armor and Lyra stops him from taking vengeance on the town. Lee and Yorick join the gypsums and the caravan begins making their way over lands towards the station with the children. Meanwhile, Mrs. Coulter is called to the magisterium headquarters so they can punish her for the raid at Jordan College. They tell her that she's been removed from her position, but then she reveals that she has captured Lord Asriel, who is being guarded by armored bears in the north, and uses this as leverage to not only keep control of the Oblation Board, but gain support for a voyage north and the privilege to ask one question of the Magisterium's alethiometer. She asks, who is Lyra Balakwa? Balakwa? I don't know. Whatever. Whatever. Later, Lord Borio barges in and also demands to ask a question of the alethiometer. How can I find what Grumman discovered? Mrs. Coulter quickly travels north on a magisterium airship and has a secret meeting with the King of the Bears, Yofarachnason, to try and get Azrael back from where he's being held prisoner. When Yofar initially refuses, she promises him a magisterium baptism, the first ever for a bear, and then he agrees. So what did people think about this episode? I think some mistakes were made, but overall... It was a very good episode. Were they Hester, you know, really brings it up a level. So they were goose-related mistakes or other? No. I mean, that was number one. I literally, I'm just going to get into this here. Oh, no, you know what? I put it in my least favorite part. I'll do it there. Okay. Carry on. Okay. Anything else? No, I mean, I liked it. Hester was fabulous. York was fabulous. Pan was great. The humans were okay, I guess. Yeah, I kind of, I thought this episode didn't seem as exciting or flashy as the past episodes, um, but I still found it very enjoyable, and I really, really love the Trollison set and all of the CGI, both for Yorick and for Hester, and just to make whales look like Norway. I think they absolutely pulled that off, and of course, they they pulled off Yorick both in terms of how he looks and, and how his voice worked, and thank God, because otherwise it would have been a rough episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you say flashy, do you mean like kind of like the stylish camera stuff that was happening in the first couple of episodes is not here? It's like more straightforward. Yeah, I don't know if it's just like kind of the rough sets versus the like very art deco or like old school academic feel from previous episodes. I don't know. The, or... It's more of a frontier town and there's yeah. not like... Yeah, it doesn't have a lot of flair to it. That's true. Maybe I just didn't get as much Mrs. Coulter as I wanted. Well, yeah, that's definitely true. I I really liked this episode, too. The energy feels different, like, right away, because we do that opening with Lee, Mm -hmm. you know, and and so we get that really great shot of, like, Lyra going towards the shore and the mountain at the prow of the boat and, and all of that stuff. And so I felt like the energy that we have through the entire episode and a little bit of a difference in Lyra's character in this one makes enough room for a couple more characters to join the party. Okay, so I think I figured out what I meant by exciting and flashy. And I think it's, it's all about the emotions of the characters. There's just, we're coming off of two back to back episodes where like Lyra finds out some really heavy shit about her family. And there's like, screaming and fighting and i don't know the the fights here the stakes just didn't seem that important and like the emotional notes weren't as 
they didn't like pull at my heartstrings as much. It was just kind of like shit happened that needed to happen before we could like set off on the journey that we actually care about. That's a really good point. Yeah, that we're we're not as inside of these people as we have been for the past couple episodes. Yeah. So I guess, you know, it wasn't bad, but it just felt like a little bit of a letdown compared to what came before it, if that makes sense. We did get some emotion from Coram. That's true. And his backstory. And I do think the next episode from just from like the online synopsis is is going to be very emotional. Yeah. So I think this is kind of like a... A breathing point. Yeah, a calm before the storm, before we head into the second half. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's got a lot of feel-good bounce to it, which was the thing that, you know, that I really noticed. Even, you know, when we're leaving, like the way that Lee, you know, smiles at Lyra when Yorick roars at the end and all of that stuff. Like, yeah, we got him. Like, there's a lot of feel-good stuff in this episode around things like that. Mm-hmm. I did notice like a lot of duality and, um, you know, like pairs of things and stuff. And I'll I'll talk more about that as we dig into the episode. Okay. So favorite part? Hester. What about her? It. She's amazing. Um, and I love her. And I want her. You like the voice actress? Yeah. She's really good. She is good. And and the, she just looks so cute. <laughs> and I want a hug. Screw Lin-Manuel. Give me, give me Hester. <laughs> wow. You're really into Hester. Yeah. I like bunnies. <laughs> and whoever put Mrs. Coulter's hat here, screw you, because that hat was fucking ridiculous. <laughs> it was the first thing you said when you watched the episode in the group chat was just, oh, my God, that hat. So I had to put it somewhere. So bad. It's bigger than her head. <laughs> what? Why? Who made that choice? So that's like the number two mistake. Yeah. Yeah. No goose and that fucking hat. So my favorite part of this episode were there were a lot of really cool moments um with between Lyra and Lee and Fartercorum. I love when they first meet and Lee tries to talk to Fartercorum and he's like, I'm just following her. Um that whole like <laughs> there's just like a lot of subtle like face acting and attention and I love it as as Lee is like very slowly realizing that Lyra's the player and everyone else is just kind of following her. I love um, Daphne Keene's face when she says another time and then just like walks off. She's like so fucking sassy and I'm here for it. <laughs> and then there was another subtle moment that I really liked that um, was when Kaiza shows up, you can just see like how uncomfortable John Fa is with having a, a demon there without a human in a way that Farter Coram isn't. Mm. And I thought, that was like a really nice uh, like character beat and world building touch. Yeah. I also really liked that bit. I didn't notice that, but um, that's a really good point. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I really liked the Magisterium stuff that we got in this, which um, was the minority of the episode. Um, but I really like how it connects to the other bits of the Magisterium that we've been shown so far. And it kind of shows you, instead of telling you, that the Magisterium is this kind of headless monster where no one's really in charge. Because like way back in episode one, we have McPhail and Boreal together and and he's like, you know, like, go out, my apprentice, and wrangle Coulter. She's done too much, you know, whatever. And then episode two, we get, you know, McPhail is like praying, and then the cardinal comes up to him, and he's like, how dare you interrupt my, oh, my lord, I'm so sorry. And you're like, oh, okay, so is this dude in charge, or is this other weird guy in charge? 
And now, you know, it comes to Mrs. Coulter is getting sat down and they're like, you're fired. And she's like, no, I'm promoted. And so there's like <laughs> this full circle thing going on where they tried to wrangle Coulter. It's and like it, a rock, paper, scissors of who's in charge yeah. of the magisterium. Yeah. And it shows you how the place operates, right? It's all like fear and who has, you know, the inside dirt on who. Like the only reason that any of them are concerned with the truth, which is such a huge theme in this story is to leverage it against each other. Everybody's got secrets, right? That's the only place the truth exists in the magisterium is in secrets. So it's just really Mm -hmm. well done, I think, the way that they show you that instead of just telling you, like, there's no Pope. Um, There's just nobody in charge. (laughs) Okay, Caitlin, are you ready for your goose rant? Oh, my God. When that... Okay, here's what happened. (laughs) I'm watching the episode. I'm on my computer everything's fine. I'm having a good time. The bird comes in. I'm like, oh, yay, it's going to be Kaisa. It lands. I literally, I paused the episode and out loud, I said, where the <laughs> fuck is the goose? And then I walked away and did not oh watch the God. rest of that episode for two days. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that is outrage. I don't, why did, it, it like completely changes who mm. Serafina is. Why would they do that? And also, geese are amazing. <laughs> And wonderful and slightly evil. And completely. And I think that says so many good things about Serafina. And and they're so. I, what, what does a hawk say? A hawk says, oh, look, it's another character with a generic bird of prey, like every other character who has a bird demon in this fucking show. Why can't somebody have some personality? That's fair. And also, geese are really hot right now. They like didn't capitalize on the the cultural capital. Well, I mean, of geese right now. True, but to be, they made this decision months ago. Yeah. So they they would they didn't know that geese were going to be the thing, which they should have because geese have always been the thing. <laughs> so to be clear, for folks who have not read the book but have been following along with our coverage of the show. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> In the book, Kaisa is a goose. <laughs> yeah, we we did the same thing when we were watching it. Like me and Christina were like, hang on a second. That is not a goose. What is happening? But a goose is so big and like scary. People yeah. don't like geese. And I think that says a lot about Serafina. And I, why a hawk? It It's so... It's such a strange choice. Like, I like a good hawk. They're very nice looking birds. But everybody who has a bird in this show either has a raven crow looking thing or has a generic looking bird of prey. Like these people need some personality. There were some uh, little songbirds in the Egyptian crew from episode one, but for the most part, you're correct. It's just weird. Characters we know, I mean. Not everybody has to have, like a hawk is not cooler than a goose, which is what I feel like is the only thing I can come up with. As to why they would have made this decision. They just didn't think a... They thought a goose would look ridiculous. And I'm like, that's part of their charm? <laughs> and they're still scary as fuck. I mean, if you have to class up a goose, just make it a swan, right? That's the obvious move. I don't know. Have you ever seen a swan fly? It looks fucking ridiculous. It looks... Because ri- the neck is so long. They're also mean as shit. Like, I have... Well, so, so are geese. Yeah. yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. They, like, have the same pers- general personality thing going on. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. So I'm very upset. Alan? 
uh, I am also upset. Uh, listeners don't know this, but I have been carving hash marks into the wall of the room that I record in every episode that James McAvoy <laughs> is not shirtless. And I have four gouges in my wall now because he, he has not been on the show since the first one. And I was kind of hoping that we would actually get to see his capture and imprisonment in the show. Like, we, you know, the book follows Lyra so closely in the first novel uh, and we just don't, you know, we don't get any of Lord Asriel, really. But we've been following the other characters and all this magisterium business. And so this this moment with Mrs. Coulter, where she just kind of whips out on McPhail and the Cardinal, like, oh, I've got Asriel in my back pocket. It's like, comes from nowhere. This has not been set up in the story at all. And I'm kind of disappointed about that. Like, how did he get captured? Are we going to see that? Is he going to take his shirt off? Like, when is this going to happen? Well, they're heading into the snowy north, so chances of being shirtless, I think, are Damn increasing, it. unfortunately. I know, I know. But there's always season I, two. I kind of agree with what you're saying, but also, like, I really loved that reveal from Mrs. Coulter when she was just like, I have Asriel. So sit the fuck down. Yeah. No, you're right. You know, it was so good. The dramatic suspense in that scene was really good. And it would have been. um, I mean, I guess we could have shown him getting captured and not let on that it was Mrs. Coulter pulling the strings. Mm -hmm. But it it worked very well as a surprise. What about you? Do you have a least favorite part? It was really hard for me to come up with the least favorite part in this one. Like, I would say this is probably my least favorite episode, but none of the parts stood out as like particularly bad um i guess i don't know if anything i kind of disagree with your take on lee's energy like i really like lee when he's interacting with the characters that we know and love because i feel like he brings it down a notch but when he's the main one on screen he's like bringing a little bit too much broadway for me and it just it feels like it doesn't mesh with the rest of the show in a weird way. Like, it's not bad. It just, it feels like he walked in off a different show. Mm-hmm. Which I guess is maybe what they're paying him to do. And I just happen to not like it. So. Yeah, I think, I guess it's because, like, I know that Robin Hood movie, which is also, like, on a on a different energy level than, like, a normal, I'm going to go see an action movie and, like, oh, this is this is an action movie like this director just the the energy that he's bringing to like the entire episode is exactly like you said it's out of step with the rest of the show so i think that's a completely valid criticism like if it doesn't work for you it doesn't work for you yeah i get the feeling that it might work better on rewatches or in a marathon context but we'll have to see okay and today we're very excited to share that we have a special guest who has been lurking silently in the background and listening to us babble. Um, (laughs) So Francis is a friend of mine, and I was asking him for his take on some of the Egyptian accents, and then uh, we ended up having a conversation that I thought was kind of fun and interesting and would be worth sharing here. So I'm bringing him on as our senior British correspondent. Um, <laughs> taking a cue from the Daily Show, oh, deep cut. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I'll take that. Welcome to the show, Francis. Um, and maybe you can give us your sort of general take on um, the accents on the show in general, and specifically the the Egyptian accents 
um, since I think they're a little bit different than, you know, the ones that we hear from Lyra and Azriel and Mrs. Coulter. Um, and, that you know, to my American ears, I can tell that they're different, but that's basically about all I can tell. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, obviously, Britain more generally has quite a wide variety of accents. Even you go maybe 20 miles down the road and you can have almost a completely different accent and a very distinctive one. And they do kind of pull on that, uh, particularly for the Egyptians, which we'll get to in a bit. Looking at, say, Lyra or Azriel, uh, they all have kind of your classic, fairly well-spoken, obviously academic sorts of uh, accents. Their elocution is pretty good. Um, And they're going for that general sort of Middle England, well-educated sort of vibe. Um, An interesting point to note is uh, James McAvoy is obviously Scottish, but his accent is very much not Scottish, uh, certainly for Asriel. But also we, you know, from various other McAvoy films and TV things, we know that he can do a lot. He can do very and many he's accents. Pulling that, pulling it off successfully. Yeah. Oh, definitely. He he certainly doesn't sound like his actual okay. accent, which I think, you know, for for someone who I I can't do accents at all. I, f- I find them super interesting, but I have no talent with them. So to me, to me, it's super impressive. But yeah, going on to the uh, the Egyptians. So the, the question, Anya, that you asked me was sort of what accent do the Egyptians have? And they don't, they don't pull one accent for the Egyptians. Uh, that, that much is kind of fairly obvious, but if you drill down into it, you really see that the thing that brings them all together is that they are these sort of working class accents, tra- traditionally speaking. So there's, you know, the if you've got slang, you'll have more of it. The words will have a tendency to have more regional dialect changes. So, and they, they are kind of sampled from across the country, uh, certainly from the ones we've heard so far. We may, we may hear more and they may sample, um, I've noticed a particular lack of kind of Southwest, but there's definitely some Northern and uh, definitely some kind of Central London, which is very, very clear, certainly to someone who hears those quite regularly. So going into some specifics, uh, Mark Costa is kind of the first one that jumped out to me, where she has a... What, what kind of jumped out to me as a uh, Manchester or sort of Huddersfield accent, that sort of Snake Pass M62 area. And I, I, w- I was foxed by it for a little bit because to me it just came across as somewhere northern, again, going for this working class sort of vibe. Um, but then looking a little bit more at Anne-Marie Duff's kind of back catalogue, she, she had a major part in Shameless, which was a, uh, a UK TV show, if you don't know it. And that was that's based in Manchester. So I would take a lot of money on her aiming for that same sort of accent. And it does come across. And the more you hear it, the more you say, that's probably a Manchester accent in some regard, um, or certainly kind of harping towards that. So that, that, I, that was the, the obvious one initially. Contrast that to her son, Tony. Now, Tony has a very much more distinctively London accent. He's, uh, you know, there's a lot more in the terms of glottal stops. He, he says things like glass rather than glass. Uh, maybe maybe not specifically that, but that that long a the long a rather than the short a, uh, and that that is interesting and fairly well done. But also you can tell just on occasion because I li- I live quite near London, so I hear the I hear these accents all the time, and you can tell that there's actually something else in there. And it turns out that Daniel Frogson is uh, is in fact from Nottingham, so there were these ever so ever so like small lilts of Midlands accent to it. 
so it's for the most part London is that's really what they're kind of pushing for there but just occasionally I was hearing a word and saying that doesn't sound quite like it so you think that's just his natural accent slipping through mm, yeah I think so I'm I'm not I'm not precisely sure I mean again they're all they, they're all doing accents and I, I can't do accents so it's it's always yeah. gonna slip through a bit but I did I the things that I noticed they were kind of muddied around the places where say Nottingham accents or kind of more generally Midlands accents are different from the London it's in, it's interesting um, that they went with you know like a parent child pair having accents that are so different from each other yeah that was that jumped out to me immediately and then the more I thought about it, the more I said, well, actually, that makes sense because, you know, your par- you don't have the accent of your parents. You have the accent mm-hmm. of where you grew up. So we don't know. We don't know that much about. Well, in fact, we know quite a lot about Mark Oster thinking about it. We know that in 1985, I think, in the in the timeline, she uh, looks after Lyra briefly. And that's actually mentioned in the episode. And then she so we know that she's definitely been hanging around the oxford area for a while and we can assume that seeing as her son is approximately the same age or certainly a similar age then he's probably grown up around that area as well um so it, it makes more sense for him to have a southern accent even though she has a northern Ooh, yeah, accent yeah that's really yeah. fair i'm trying to think of other ones that we had oh yeah john far now john far foxed me because the accent is not british and I, I, I kind of puzzled over this for a little while, trying to work out what, where it was from. Uh, but again, I, I did my looking around and look at Lucian Masmati. Uh, I, I researched that for so long and I still <laughs> stumble over it. Um, he's from Zimbabwe. And so uh, whilst his general speaking voice, if you listen to interviews with him, is he's a very very good uh, Shakespearean actor. Uh, he does he does very many things all over with a huge range of again accents and uh, time periods as well. But there is I do believe he's kind of at least leaning on that uh, kind of Zimbabwe esque slightly just different accent which you don't hear. But that that really stands out for John Farr as a character that he's such a he's such a strong person such a strong influence and it kind of just brings him out from the yeah. rest of the Egyptians. I like that. He's that he's kind of um uh separated from everybody which you constantly get with his character where people are always arguing with him or he's having to like tell people what to do and that leadership is, you know, kind of alienates him from the rest of the group and it's even reflected in the choice of the accents. So that's interesting. Yeah, definitely. And you can see uh, even when there's later on in the episode, there's conflict between uh, John Farr and Lyra, and you can see where he suddenly sticks out as he he's he's there for the good of the Egyptians, but he's also he's got very very strong beliefs on what should be done, and that is the way it is. And this is kind of skipping ahead to something that that you have lower down in the dock, but having mm-hmm. that kind of non-British accent in the mix, it really gives the feel that the Egyptians are kind of like from all over and like very much, um, you know, like they have a distinct culture, but they also are kind of like disparate and spread out and and are have influences from a lot of different places. Absolutely. I found it, uh, the way that they tied the Egyptians together as an obvious culture, whilst having them, as you say, very disparate was really, really 
elegantly done. The you know even just looking at the materials they're using for their clothing, the styles. You've got sort of a lot of things like knitwear, very practical practical things. If you're out on a boat in you know in the wet, relatively exposed quite a lot of the time, you're going to want these sorts of relatively hardy but practical gear. But they're also quite colourful. If you look at you look at there's a lot of different colours coming out, whilst but in a very different way to say uh, Coulter's colours, where she wears a dress and there'll be one lovely satin dress or s- similar in say blue and then everything will be very well coordinated and it is just this kind of royal blue or this scarlet red and then the Egyptians have very much more these ever so slightly more pastely colours they look like slightly cheaper dyes they look like a slightly more rough and ready approach but they're also you can tell that they're well worn they look sometimes patched I thought that was just such a brilliant way of giving this feel to this culture which you don't usually think of yeah, and they also have much more like mixed color palettes, like lots of like the patterns are kind of bright and loud and and multicolored. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm just trying to think of um. Oh yeah, the the only other accent which I was str- I still struggle to kind of work out is um Fardacorum because his accent doesn't fit this the rest of this archetype of the traditionally or stereotypically working class. It's very much. It's kind of a it's kind of an enigma to me there. Uh, it's just a very neutral, very he's he's well spoken, uh, but he's also he's not super, you know, super. Uh, it's not great pronunciation all the time, but he's very clear. He gets his points across very well, but at the same time, it's definitely he he definitely still lives on a boat. If that makes sense. That makes sense to me for book quorum. I don't know if they're going in the same direction with TV quorum, but in the book mm. he was, you know, he was he was he grew up Egyptian obviously, and he was kind of like a The only word that's coming to mind is warrior, soldier. Soldier is what I was going for. <laughs> <laughs> a little less dramatic. And yes. Um and that until he got sick and his illness like you know he was disabled after that and so then he all that he had previously put into his like being fit and able he put into learning and traveling and or not traveling but like he he became like an intellectual yeah an intellectual there we go and so that to me makes sense that he would have started with this like gyptian accent route and perhaps gone somewhere else with it. Yeah. That's quite nice. I mean, he had to end up in a place where he was interacting with witches a lot, and so he's clearly, like, been some places and done some shit. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's he's seen the world, and it kind of, as you say, it feels like it started from traditional Egyptian, and then he's gone, he's seen things, and he's just picked up things along the way, and so he gets this very kind of chimeral accent mm-hmm. uh, where it's just a, a little bit of everything all at once and it's very hard to place and I, I don't know if that's intentional but it certainly adds to it for me yeah the, the thing here in the tv show is that he doesn't like in the in the book i think he walks with a cane and he's very obviously not mm. not as able-bodied as he was when he was younger pre the illness so mm-hmm. but they haven't done that in the show so i don't know what they're really doing with his character here. What is the timeline of that in the books? I don't, you know, so not too much in the books, but... It was, he he was young, he met Serafina, they had a kid, the kid died, 
They separated. He got ill. She sent him something to help him get better, which kind of helped a bit. And they still haven't seen each other since. That's interesting because, like, when you, then when you think about the demon coming, if that did happen, you know, in the history of of this adaptation, that it kind of explains elements of his um, embarrassment or, like, you know, kind of like he's like, yeah, I don't look like I used to, and it's not just about age. There, maybe it might be, you know, something related to the mm-hmm. illness. So that's interesting. They did. That particular scene did really feel mm-hmm. like he was talking to an ex-lover. It was quite it was quite stark considering he's talking to a bird. And I'm not going to say the big old H word there because <laughs> a pseudo goose, if you will. Yes. As Kate Caitlin keeps impressing upon me, it's not just an animal; it's actually a part of the soul. Mm-hmm. So mm. you, yeah, you. It's I mean, it's hard as a non-demon having human to like really keep the importance of that in my mind all the time i think that's particularly striking for the um also in general in the series that's probably one of the first times we've seen someone interact with another person's demon but not really with the person obviously because in this case the person is not there but it's it's almost jarring to see because nearly always the demons are there in the background or the demons communicate with each other and the people communicate Mm -hmm. with each other but to see this kind of crossover it almost Mm. it almost feels taboo oh it definitely does and that's why i love uh john faz acting so much because he's not saying anything but you can tell he is like so upset just like visibly unsettled yeah it's really good yeah i really really like that bit I'm sad we didn't get to see Kaisa and Sofinax interact. Um, that was a Quorum's demon. Do they in the book? I don't think they do. At least, no, I wouldn't think okay. so. I don't. It, it never. I don't remember it ever mentioning that they did. But still, would have been nice. Oh well. It does feel like the they they have still got the point across that the the witches and their demons are all very aloof. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't feel like they kind of engage with the rest of society. They are just their own little thing. And they kind of don't really care for the petty squabbles of the mortal man. Yeah. I'm trying to remember when in the book we find out about um, the whole lore for how, like, witches and their male lovers, like, like how witch reproduction works, basically. It's later on okay. during the chapter of ballooning and exposition. Okay. So potentially <laughs> still coming. Potentially. Um, I the only other thing I have kind of written down here is just an interesting side note of um, when I was I was looking a little bit at the Egyptians and their culture across the uh, across all of the different interpretations that we've had of this story and uh, one of the things I came across was that they in the in the continuity the Fens of East Anglia were sort of settled by the Dutch. So they they came into the fens and they dyked them all up and they kind of drained parts of the fen to make it more livable. Um, still relatively dangerous, and you, you do actually come back to that much much later. In fact, not even in this trilogy. <laughs> uh, but the so the Dutch came over, they they dyked it all up, they settled down, and then the there's kind of a creole that forms, which is uh, called fens Dutch, and it's a mix of uh, the English at the time with certain Dutch influences and Dutch words. So whilst it's not mentioned very heavily, it's kind of hinted at that there is... The Egyptians, they have their own words. They have their own sort of lexicon. Uh, Again, it's almost a Creole, which is 
I, I would kind of like to see a little bit more of in the mm-hmm. show. I know that it's quite hard to do, but if you look at things like uh, The Expanse or I suppose to an extent Serenity, though it's a little bit more kind of clumsy in Firefly Serenity where they're mixing uh, Mandarin with, uh, with English. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But certainly in The Expanse, they're bringing together lot you know a few different languages and they I would love it's, that. it's done really very well but it's all it's really a creole it's not it it's not these two languages anymore it's people using this combination of various different uh, sort of providences of language all together as one as their native tongue and so just to be clear based on the fact that i know very little about british history this is just book lore that's not something that happened in real life there are no fens dutch yeah. in actual <laughs> Our no. England. Okay, great. <laughs> no, that's that 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 did not happen. Um, I can't yeah, remember what actually yeah. happened to the Fens over the years. I believe it pro it probably got hit by the Saxons. Most most things got hit by the Saxons, followed by the Normans. I don't know if they got raided by the Vikings. It feels like a sort of place which would, but that's just because it's wet. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's a nice place though. Do do go if you ever get the opportunity. <laughs> what part of the country is it in? Uh, the kind of southeast. Is that southeast to mid east? Is mid-east. that Essex? Uh, a bit above okay, Essex. So not the Jersey so, Shore uh, of England. <laughs> no, no. That's what wow. that's, I didn't make that up. Okay, I'm just repeating what I've been told. I will not make a comment <laughs> on there. <laughs> I don't think it was you. I think it was before I knew you. <laughs> <laughs> well, either either way, I stand by my point. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i think that's uh well francis we we made you uh sit quietly during like our general impressions and favorite parts and least favorite parts so like i would love to hear like your general impressions of th- this episode oh yeah i'll be so overall i really i did like this episode it was a real change of pace it it I felt like the brakes had been put on the exposition train, and we were sort of digging a little bit deeper into, not not necessarily into the characters. We were we were introducing new people. Like it was lovely to meet Lee and Yorick, even though I did feel that Trollosond was kind of a touch convenient. It felt like if you're running a Dungeons and Dragons campaign or something, and everyone all just runs into each other in a tavern, and no right. no one really. Like, they have their reasons for being there, but it did feel a touch contrived, but it feels a touch contrived in the book as well. So I'm not, I can't hold that against the the show itself. Um, I did really like the fact that Lee brings this lighter sort of fun tone, which we haven't really had for, a f- you know, really at all. He's kind of, there's a little wink, there's a little nod, there's a cheeky grin. And yeah, and he also brings that not only to the series as a whole, but within the lore to the kind of, crew that they're building up he is he is the humor he is that cheek he is the uh the silver-tongued one if you will um for now um but yeah i, I... <laughs> subtle very subtle spoilers <laughs> oh <laughs> the books have been out a long time <laughs> um but yeah this this overall this episode felt like like the end of act one and then Act Two, we're mm. going into the north, and like right at the end of the episode, they're going off. They're they're going off on foot. These Egyptians who have been, we've only seen them really on their boats, and they've they've struck off on foot, and well, with a tracked vehicle as well. But ignoring that again, and it feels like the start of the next act. If you split the book into two acts, it kind of sits. This is this is that halfway point. Yeah. So that was my general impression. 
That's great. I love that you yeah. picked that out too, that the, the Egyptians are now kind of out of their element. I spent a lot of time mm. obsessing over like how much detail to include in the summary. And that's, it seemed like a big <laughs> enough detail that it was like worth writing down. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think it was a, it, it just struck me as this felt like a stop. Yeah. Why did it feel like that, a stop? That like final mm -hmm. scene, all these boat people trudging over land. Yeah. And in that final scene, it is like you see a bird fly overhead. That is Kaisa, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I thought so. so too. Yeah, I thought so too. I mean, if it had been a big black goose, we definitely would have known. <laughs> right. Like you could not have mistaken it for anything else. <laughs> Maybe someone else could have had a goose demon. Like... <laughs> Oh, what an affront if that happened. <laughs> Could you imagine? I would be even angrier. Well, <laughs> what about your favorite part? Um, yeah, so my favorite part, I'd say I loved seeing a bit more of Father Coram's kind of transition from this very stoic figure as Lyra doesn't really know him much. And then as she gets to know him, we get to know him. So he turns from this uh, like father figure into a very emotional guy very, very quickly. As um, as he starts talking about mm -hmm. Serafina and starts talking about his son, and you can see him, you know, his resolve really crumbles very quickly and very visibly. Like again, testament to the acting here. And it suddenly you look at him in a very different light, and you see him through kind of adult eyes rather than a child's eyes for a second. Mm -hmm. And the the other major one was I love Leon Hester. To me, it was exactly how I imagined it and how I read it in the books. They felt like friends. They felt like absolute best friends. Well, some of some of the demons, they feel like it feels like they're in servitude, particularly um, the classic would be Coulter and the uh, monkey demon. Right. Like, that feels like he is servile, whilst Hester feels like your best mate. You know, you, you'd, go to, you'd go to the pub with her. I mean, you'd buy her a shot rather than a pint, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that I'm not sure if that counts yeah. as like animal abuse. I mean, this, that actually that that's a whole other ethical kettle of fish. Which <laughs> I don't I don't think demons can consume things like eat or drink. I don't think that that is a thing because then they'd have to poop deal with and it. Just don't want to think about that's that. True. Yeah. And soul poop. Yeah. What is that? But I agree because it's so nice to get this. Uh, opposite view of something there's a word for that whatever contrast there we go <clears throat> this contrast from people like mrs coulter and the monkey to somebody who is so at home with themselves and good with themselves and it makes sense for lee because he's alone so much on his balloon he would have to be very okay with just being with himself mm -hmm. so it's nice to see that related in his relationship with esther are people less lonely in lyra's world i think so I mean, Kate's probably thought about this more than I have, but... Well, they talk about it in the second book, because okay. that's when a main character is somebody like us, and I'm trying to say this right. as subtly as possible. <laughs> um, and Lyra thinks about how lonely that must be to not have someone there in situations where you need someone. Yeah. So just very quickly, going back to your point about uh, Farter Coram and how um, he's humanized a lot in this episode i was so fucking glad that they didn't do the thing that philip pullman did in the book where when we first hear buttercorum talk about seraphina pecola he's like just being a lecherous old man and totally objectifying her it's yeah. like classic men writing 
about women. And I was like, when I complained about this in our book episode covering it, but I, it just made me so mad to read that. And then when I found out later that they actually had a relationship and a kid and all of that, I was like, okay, I'll forgive that as just an out of character moment, like the author seeping through, but um, so glad that there was no def- angle f- of that here. I definitely agree that it's a, it feels out of character in the book. It feels, it doesn't feel like Coram and I think that they made a very good choice by getting rid of that, even though it's a, it's a it's a minor thing in what he's talking about anyway. It's really not a major part, so it's no loss. We get a better view of what Coram's really like. Maybe, you know, I mean, we still see that he's flawed. We still see that he's got his problems, but it's just not quite as sexist. Yeah, yeah and like... Which I think is a good thing. Not only does it not feel like Father Coram, it also doesn't feel like what any man would say about like a woman who he was in love with and went through a horribly traumatic life event with like that's anyway (sighs) stepping down off the soapbox um now you can complain about something what was your least favorite part this is a very particular one i really really didn't like hester's cgi and it's it's something very specific about it which is the face is too expressive to me to me the demons are basically animals they they communicate their excitement, their emotions through their kind of general activity and their behavior, and then maybe also their vocal tone and just the words that they actually choose. So giving them these sort of uncanny valley pseudo-human expressions really, it detracts from the thing that makes Lyra's world different. The this sort of alienness where human and animal or like thing that looks like animal are one. But you can't. The whole thing is you can't really read someone else's demon very well, um, because they're not so innate to you. And so I, I found it just, it just slight. It just got to me. And same with uh, Pan. Actually, Pan smiles. And, and in fact, at the end of this episode, um, Yorick smiles, and it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like you should have a smirking polar bear. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that apparently makes me quite angry. You know, that never would have occurred to me, but now that you mention it, I totally see what you're saying. I don't mind it on York because he's like a full and incomplete being with emotions. Mm. But I agree, with yeah. That. Yeah. I, I, I agree about the demons. They are making some strange choices with the demons f- from my point of view. I don't think it's bad. It's just, it drags me out of it. The rest of this is such a brilliantly faithful adaptation and then that just jars me away and th- I go that's not how it goes that's not how that looks like mm-hmm. yeah there, there, there were things later uh, quite quite a lot later on which I'll be really interested to see if they can get the emotion through whilst having something that I can only describe as looking like a slightly off cut of Watership Down <laughs> sort of thing <laughs> That might be too mean. I really love the show, guys. It's fine. (laughs) One of the things in the book that they do is Pan expresses his emotions a lot through changing forms. Yes. And I can Mm -hmm. understand where Mm -hmm. maybe money-wise they just couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they do. He he flits between forms when he's agitated. Yeah. I forgot about that. And when they're fighting as well. But also I remember like there's a specific scene in the book where, uh, in the second book, sorry, where he's one animal. I forget what animal that is, but then he he does something, and right after he feels kind of like shy, so he immediately changes into a moth and goes right back to Lyra. 
and mm-hmm. like stuff like that when he if like he changes into things to either hide what he's feeling or thinking or that type of thing and like there's one scene where he turns into like the saddest little puppy dog oh you know and and that sort of thing so they're not really doing that yeah i we'll see i think i I obviously, as you said, it's going to cost it costs money to model a new animal, and yeah. I think that's also one of the reasons why we don't see quite such a diverse set of demons. There's a lot of dogs, there's a lot of birds, and it, it like it it's not jarring. It just when you think it, the more you think about it, the more you go, I kind of want a few more. I did notice it was like the same black dog in Trollisund that was uh yeah. searching the the egyptian barge looking for lyra oh yeah and the, mm-hmm. that was the same dog that's also standing standing guard outside the um one of the magisterium, magisterium. Yeah. Yeah. i liked it in the magisterium because yeah. it gave it all uniform and it it puts the idea in your head that these guards are like raised in a specific environment from when they're kids and told that this is what your demon is going to be and this is who you are and this is what you're doing mm-hmm. mm. stormtroopers you know and yeah. i i actually kind of like that like that these the idea that these guards are raised from their kids to be who and what they are and are kind of forced into being a certain type of person yeah but that sounds evil it is exactly that's why i, I like it but i yeah, they probably just did weird. that because it looked cool and meanwhile i'm like that's actually a really cool story point when you really read into how people's <laughs> demons settles but i get the feeling that the show isn't putting that much thought into settled demons of the background characters that's no. that's just me. So it is also mentioned by um, by Philip Pullman that uh, he certainly mentions when they're fighting the Skraylings, I think, or something like that. Some um, there are people who all have wolf demons. Yeah, yeah. They all have huskies, I think. Uh, what was, was the other maybe one? Maybe it was the Tartars. Yeah, something. Mm. Oh yeah, it might be. Yeah. The it was a yeah, certain right. brand of yeah, like right. warrior yeah. people that the Magisterium hired or Mrs. Coulter. Yeah, it it was the Tartars. You're right. What? The uh, what one thing I just generally want to point out because um, me and all the all the biologist friends I have, we there was a message that went around between all of us saying, "Oh my God, the librarian's demon is the sweetest thing." <laughs> it's just this little uh, sort of salamander, yeah. and I don't know why it spoke to everyone, but my God, it did. That is the most adorable little thing. <laughs> and when when she went off, the love was like, "Here's the book." <laughs> that was so yeah. good. <laughs> it was like, oh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course it can, like, crawl along the surface of books, like, up and down, and it'd be like, oh, yep, this is the one. Like, that's why it is what it is. Like, it's perfect. Yeah, I like How interesting also. There was another reptile demon this episode, too, right? One of the Magisterium. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we've had a couple snakes, too. So, rep- herps are getting snakes. some representation. Well, the- <laughs> Unlike fish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody walking around with, like, a bowl of like... <laughs> Yeah, he's in there. <laughs> I have an eight kilo tuna. <laughs> okay, while we're ta- while yeah, we're yeah. talking about demons, so for people listening, we are recording these episodes early. So I think episode this is we're recording this in between episode two and episode three airing. And because of episode two, I keep getting all these like articles popping up where his dark materials has given a canon reason for why we don't see the demons that they're not making. And people are saying that that when Boreal was in our world and tells what's-his-face computer dude that, you know, we don't always have our demons on display. Like, that's that they put mm. that in there 
so that we would think that's why we're not always seeing people's demons. Because they're just always in people's pockets. It's literally what you said in the first episode. Exactly. (laughs) But A, what a cop out. And B, (laughs) I thought that that was like a character moment, not like a please don't blame us for not spending all that money moment. Like, I don't, but I've had like multiple, Google has just been feeding me all these articles and I'm like, wow, this is, I just don't think it was that important. You think they're like paying to push this propaganda? Maybe. Well, I mean, obviously because we do this, I get a lot of his dark material stuff. Like Google just thinks I want it. And Google's not wrong, so. Yeah, that's fair. Is this the new conspiracy theory? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's just, it's just lots of pocket demons. Everybody's got a Pokeball. (laughs) (laughs) That would be useful for something like Stel Maria. Stel Maria? Stel whatever. Oh, man. Actually, this is reminding me. I basically had a snake demon for, like, a large part of middle school. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. While you were in middle school, you took your soul out of your body and put it... (laughs) And you had a snake and now. The snake talked well, there was, to you. Didn't we all? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was wish, a, actually, yeah. a snake in the biology room and we got very friendly and I would like I would take it out of the the cage after school and it would like crawl up through like I had my hair in a ponytail and would it would oh, Jesus. crawl up between the ponytail band and my scalp and then like curl on top of my head. I would have lost my mind. So Anya is a Slytherin. Wait, <laughs> with like in a good way or a bad way? No, in a bad way. In I would in my hair? No, I don't mind snakes, but not in my oh, hair. No, was, we're great. Uh-huh. We're great friends. And I would like walk around and like run errands. And then occasionally people would be like, oh, my God, there's a snake in your hair. And I'd be like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> that maybe explains some things it's, about me. It's very metal. <laughs> very metal of you. <laughs> For real. I don't that's not it's not metal at all. It's I just snakes are cool. Ah, uh, the the true test of metal. <laughs> <laughs> it's like being a real hit. You don't hang out with enough biologists. Francis, you're on my side, right? Yeah, I mean, I've seen I've seen people with skinks on their shoulders just day to day and you're like, "How how do you how do you have that? Why what? You're just in the office and there's just a skink on your shoulder. Right, but she was in middle. She wasn't a... Anya, you were not a biologist at the time. You were 12. I guess 12. no, but I was in biology class. <laughs> uh-huh. In a way. Okay. Okay. <laughs> in a way, but more accurately, you're outside in the corridors with a snake in yeah, your hair. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if you were wanting to intimidate the other kids and tell them to fuck off... I'd be 100% behind this. But if you were just like, I just like having a snake in my hair, that's a little bit odd. I mean, the snake liked it as much or more than I did. So, I mean, it was. If the snake didn't like it, you'd have no yeah. snake in your hair. Yeah. It was probably all body heat related. Let's be honest. I wasn't like putting emotions onto the snake, but uh, I enjoyed it. Um, okay. How are you feeling, Francis? Are you like about to pass out? When it- Keep I'm chill. Okay. Um. Yeah. All good. All right. I'm gonna take an aside before we go into the episode for a new segment that I am calling Caitlin's Knitting Corner. <laughs> because I like this. So uh, I had a discussion with some folks on Twitter about Lyra's hat in this episode. Which previously, if you do follow us on Twitter, you'll see that I did kind of knit up a crappy replica of it from what I could tell of its construction from the 
not great pictures we had previous to the show premiering. But in this episode, we do finally get a very up-close, good look at the hat. And it confused the crap out of me. Because if you look at it, you will notice that the... Okay, so the red hat has like these bumps that stick out along it and then all come together at the top. And I thought that that was like a normal pearl knit rib, which is how you would do that with a normal hat, which is what I did in my replica. Um, but in the up close, I could see that the the more down stitches, I don't know how to explain this in non-knitting terms, are going in the opposite direction as perfect. the bump up ones, which is just not, I would have no idea how to do that in normal knitting. So... Uh, I was talking with uh, at Fool for a Tuke and at Sarah Louise. There's a lot of E's in there uh, on Twitter. And Sarah pointed out that this was a special type of knitting that I had never personally come across before. It was uh, like a Latvian Estonian braid on the hat. So I'm going to look into that and hopefully revisit my recreating of the hat. Wait, where's but when did I you that post that, this on Twitter? I'm looking for the picture so I can We'll post the picture of my hat? Yeah. Or the yeah, the hat that you made. Didn't you just say you posted a picture of your hat? Yeah, on the measures of truth. Uh, yeah. It's on the measure yeah, of truth. Yeah, you can also see a little bit of me, which I don't actually do that much on the internet. Sorry about my face. We'll She's link to it in the show her. notes so you don't have to <laughs> scroll through Twitter forever like I am doing currently. Anyways, so I was just really happy to get that information. And we talked about how um, the type, the Estonia Latvian knitting would probably be, f have originated from the area of the world that they are currently in. So it, so it just made sense that the costume department put all that into this one little hat. And we talked about that a lot and it was cool. And I'm interested to learn this new type of knitting that I don't know. And also, Lyra is wearing a yellow scarf in this episode, which didn't get a good look at. So, to be continued on the scarf. I was going to say, I really loved the hat-scarf-coat combo that they have her in all primary colors, and they look really good and striking together. The, like, red, mm -hmm. yellow, and blue. I despise the color yellow, so I will not be making a replica of that scarf. <laughs> So I felt like that ensemble was kind of symbolic. So I've I've been, you know, like I've been tracking the different colors and, and I feel strongly that blue is like the Mrs. Coulter color and the Magisterium color. And then red is like the Jordan College, kind of the Shire color, you know. Um, and then gold or yellow was what Lord Asriel was kind of sporting with that um, fur-lined jacket that he had while he was like looking off into the middle distance with his backpack slung over his shoulder, um, scene that I watched uh, over and over on a loop. Um, anyway, so I feel like there you get the Jordan College on her head, uh, Lord Asriel wrapped around her, and then the Mrs. Coulter, your color is blue. And all of those are Egyptian clothes. And so you have like a synthesis of all of these people that make up who Lyra is becoming in just right there in her outfit. And like you said, uh, Francis, it kind of like helps to work to close that first act, mm -hmm. right? She's like stepping into her new character. Yeah, I really like that. And she does get rid of the blue coat in this episode. 
Yeah. Pretty quick. Yeah. And I li- I like the fur coat a lot better. It looks cozy and less like a poncho on her. Yeah. Like I feel like she put on John Fawz jacket. <laughs> you know the blue one. I thought they were both cute in different ways. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, no, no. I'm not saying it's not cute. I'm just saying I like the one that actually fits her. Yeah, that's fair. And it does look more comfortable and nicer. And it's, it, it, I, I'm, I'm just gonna go whole hog. I much, much prefer that coat. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's might just because it's getting really, really cold here. Yeah, it definitely looked warmer, at least. All right, shall we get into the episode proper? Oh my gosh, we've been recording for over an hour. But we've talked about so many important <laughs> things. This is true. This is true. <laughs> I hope you like cutting. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get into the meat of the episode, I just have a question that I want to ask. In that first scene, when they're on their way to the witch's console, and Lyra's walking around with Fartercorum, and she's pulling the alethiometer out um, and like reading it in public, and there's like all of those townspeople peeking over and like looking at her and spying on her, was the whole point of that just so that the witch's console would know that she had it when they got there? Or is was there something else? It just seemed like really heavy-handed, and I was trying to figure out like how, what it meant or how it was going to come back, and, and and then it like didn't really come to that much. I don't know. I, do, I didn't like that scene at all. I thought it was poorly written and acted and not well done. So I don't know either what they were really trying okay, to do. Okay, so I was not the only one who was like kind of confused with how that was executed. Like I can see where maybe they could have put one person in there looking at them and then we find out later that, oh, that person was for the witch console and not like a magisterium spy. Yeah. Yeah, I, but- it actually confused me. I, I was looking, I was saying, well, who, like... It, these could be anyone this could be leading to like are they magisterium informers or like is it just that this town is really close knit it it didn't didn't help yeah and the magisterium already knows that she has the alethiometer because when mrs coulter is doing the raid on jordan college that becomes like very clear textually she might not have well, told the rest of the magisterium. I think, that's fair yeah i think that there's actually too many things going on in that scene and that's the what the problem is there because i think it uh, on one level yes like it is setting up the thing that you're talking about where he's like i have eyes all over the town uh but the other thing that's happening is he mentions that like you didn't see any children in this town we have also been affected so there's a child walking around the town everybody's like what the fuck Mm. and then also the magisterium has stepped up its presence in the town and that is making like Father Quorum nervous, and he's like seeing the Magisterium soldiers, and he's like, "Put that away," um, because you know we're, we're somebody might know what that is, and we're gonna get in trouble. So like, there's and and then I also think there's something going on there of like the dynamic between Father Quorum and and Lyra and like what she's doing. It's setting up that like. It's a bad idea to have the alethiometer out and to admit that you have an alethiometer so that later it is Lyra deciding to reveal to the to the guy that like I do have an alethiometer and I do know how to read it against, you know, the general not not like Fodderkorn told her not to say that, but like she's not taking his lead on that. She's making a choice. So it's like doing a lot of things, which 
sometimes in writing like, oh, this is impressive. But I think actually here it's like doing too much and it's yeah, confusing. That's thank you. All of those points make a lot of sense, but I was not able to pull them out in my two times watching this episode. But it's also the scene where Lyra is describing to Coram and to the audience how she reads the alethiometer. Yeah, mm-hmm. that too. And, yeah, there's way yeah, too much, and right? And I don't, I didn't really like that at all. I didn't, it just felt like they picked out certain words from the book and then put them in there, <laughs> but it just didn't really make any sense. Mm-hmm. If you didn't, didn't already read the book and understand what was going on. Didn't it, it didn't also feel like the sort of explanation that Lyra would give. Yeah. It felt like Philip Pullman giving an explanation of a feeling rather than Lyra explaining how she felt something. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Okay, but speaking of Lyra and good things happening, I really loved how in this episode we finally get to see her like lying and getting creative. And I, her manipulation of Lee was fabulous. Yeah, it was so good. And it's the trait of hers that's there much more from the beginning in the book. And we've talked about how it's been kind of missing in the TV show so far. Um, so I'm glad that we're finally getting to see that side of her. I still don't think like pre her being at Bullvanger, that's probably the only the only instance of it that we're going to see. So I do feel like they've kind of dropped the ball on that. Because, I don't know. I don't know if I would believe of this Lyra the things that book Lyra does, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Is she nicer? No, it does. I don't know about nice. Well, I guess actually book Lyra is not a very nice person. Mm. She's a good person, but I don't know that she's very nice. Do you mean in she's book just, one or in later mm, books? No, in book one. You don't really see Lyra being nice to people. Mm-hmm. She kind of like controls every situation with her ability to tell stories or like say just the right thing in the book. And I feel like in the show, what Lyra is especially good at compared to other characters is forming emotional connections with people. And and when that when she tries to do that with characters like Lord Asriel or Mrs. Coulter, then there's a lot of like pushback from them because they are like there's reasons why they don't want to do that. But that's really her strength as a character, like her, her capability. And you see that demonstrated in this episode, you know, in terms of like, she meets Lee's energy with the same kind of energy. Like he's doing whatever it takes to get the thing done and like tricking people. And, and she just takes that trickster. He like walks into the bar and tries to challenge people to play cards. And she comes back with a poker metaphor because she knows that that's going to get him like Mm -hmm. all of that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, she makes connections with people, and uh, and that's what she does in this episode. She makes that connection with Yorick. She's you know, and and with Lee, and that's how they come along. Before we get too far away from the beginning, I did want to bring up that I loved the opening with Lee and Hester. I know we've talked about this already, and how. Oh wait, maybe we did completely cover this point because I did also bring up Mrs. Coulter and the monkey. Cut that out. Wait, what? Okay. Oh, just like how they get along. Yeah, yep. I mean. There, I really loved the monkey slap in this episode. Anytime there's a monkey slap, it's usually pretty good, but this one was no exception. Wait, we're not going to be able to talk about that because I just fucked up everything. Oh. Do you want me to bring you no, back no, no, to no. that in a way that will work? No, I don't, I don't care. Other people don't <laughs> need to hear that. I just wanted to say that to you right now. Okay. You just like it when a monkey gets slapped? I, mean... <laughs> 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 I just... The, the look... I, 
Okay, if we're going to talk about demon facial expressions, I think the, like, the way that the monkey, like, looks at Miss Coulter and keeps on trying to reach out to her and she's like, fuck you, I'm not vulnerable in this moment. Like, I don't need you. I'm going to just be a cold-ass bitch and take care of the situation. It makes you feel more sorry for him than I think you do in the books. Oh, yeah, he is, like, evil incarnate Mm -hmm. in the books. Yeah. It's a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe this is a good enough conversation to keep. <laughs> you did fuck it all Which up, means- Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> the one other thing that I wanted to say was just that I thought that the way that they portrayed York's motivations for not wanting to be helped um, because he was stuck in like a shame cycle. I just, I loved the way that they portrayed that. I loved the voice actor. It made me really feel for him. And it it felt super realistic. I think a lot of people know what it's like to get stuck in a a shame cycle like that and and not Mm -hmm. want help even when people are like trying to get you out of of it and, and offer their assistance. I just, I really liked the portrayal of like where he was coming from and how Lyra breaks through to him ultimately in the end. I really loved Yorick. And when we finally see him in his armor, and then at the very end of the episode, we get that brief glimpse of Yofer Ragnason and his like super duper armor. That was really Mm. good because you could tell that his was all big and fancy. Yeah. And, and Yorick's Mm. was just like, I strapped some stone onto my head. This be my headstone. It's like some. Yeah. Uh, it's like. <laughs> it's the. What is it? What do you call sky it? Sky iron? Kind of iron? The, the sky uh, iron? Uh, Meteoric iron. No, no, no. No, you no, mean no. really? What it's is it like called? The, iron. Is it not cold Cold iron? Me- like the kind of iron that's like you haven't worked it. Oh. Um, you just like. Pig iron. It. Pick, yeah, yeah. That's what it looks like to me. It's like just. He just did the bare minimum to be like, yeah, this is. This is like rugged. I mean, the, you know? the whole thing is, it's, it's meant to be meteoric iron, isn't it? It's uh, literally just mm-hmm. fell from the sky and is good iron thing. Oh my God, you're but, blowing like, my the- fucking mind right now. I had no idea that sky iron meant <laughs> meteor. I just assumed, assumed oh. it was a metaphor. <laughs> I didn't realize it was a literal description of iron that came from the sky. Sorry, continue. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I feel like we've talked about this in the book Have episodes, we? Maybe though. Maybe I was asleep or something. Because, because we talked about how Lee and York uh, fought together somewhere that a meteor fell, didn't we? Oh my god, maybe I'm mixing us up with a different podcast that I was listening to. <laughs> that is amazing, because I can see like mixing up podcasts that you're not a part of, but that's really special to just like project other people's thoughts into your so <laughs> i've also Did been listening <laughs> i've also been listening to the extraneous podcast on their his dark materials episodes and it is i guess i just smooshed their discussions with ours <laughs> whoops it's <laughs> what happens when your life is a little too podcasty that's the thing I, apparently i have found it <laughs> yeah. i didn't know before just now <laughs> No, but I like the point that you're making that Yofer is definitely not compensating. Yeah. For <laughs> He's just, yeah. That's, it's good, though, that, like, I really appreciate, like, all the contrast in this episode. And you see that, like, in those two scenes where uh, when Lyra is confronting Yorick and trying to help him and he's pushing her away emotionally and he gets, like, 
right nose to nose to her and is like roaring at her to try and terrify her and, and make her run away. And she just stands there and, and goes through it and, you know, perseveres versus like Mrs. Coulter and, uh, Yofer, who is like as far away as possible, like she's barely in the door and she's like, uh, Yofer, we need to have a conversation at a great <laughs> distance so that, <laughs> you know, and like and he very much wants to be with her as opposed to like Yorick, who doesn't want to be with Lyra because he doesn't want to be vulnerable uh, and and Yofer wants approval and inclusion. And so, like, it's just all, like, polarized um, and contrasting with each other. They're, like, inside while, you know, Yorick's outside and just all of this stuff. Um, that's great. And then, you know, he goes into the church, throws the priest through the window, and then comes barreling out of the church while all Yofer wants is to get into oh. that church and get wet. You know, he wants in the church. So it's like, it's just, you know, the entire construction of it is just diametrically opposed in ways that uh, I think are really good storytelling. It does frame him as gullible as well, which um, comes back later in the book anyway. True. Yeah. Yeah. This is setting him up. I wonder how much Mm. the baptism offer makes sense to people who haven't read the book. Because I feel like without having any other exposure to Yofer and like his character, it could seem like it comes out of left field. I guess Coulter's comment about him being the only bear makes some sense, right? Because he just wants to be special. Um, but it's not mm-hmm. It's not quite clearly communicated that what he really wants is not just to be special, but to be human. Yeah, and it's like colonialism 101, right? Like, we are here, you indigenous person that I have helped, we will make you Christian, which will legitimize you with the Europeans, and you will be our peer. I mean, not really, listen, you know, listen, you're our servant, but we're going to tell you that you're our peer as long as you're doing what we say until we come in and take all of your stuff. Yay! <laughs> uh, so, like, yeah. that's what she's doing, right? Is, like, making promises to get in there and get what she wants. Yeah, and her slightly... In that same scene, her very saccharine nature, and he just doesn't seem to see it at all. He's so wrapped up in, I am the king. I am the only king, and there is no other king but me, that he seems to entirely (laughs) miss this, like, painfully obvious, just sheer flattery. And just makes you think, he's not a very clever bear, is he? I'm so happy that all of you got all this very intelligent stuff out of that scene when all I got was, oh my God, that hat. (laughs) (laughs) We were watching something else. I was showing Christina the pictures that I sent to you in the chat when you were like, oh, this hat. And um, I was telling her about it. And then we happened to be watching another show where a lady wore like the same kind of hat. And Christina was like, see, that's like what those fur hats are supposed to look like. They're supposed to be huge. And I was like... I, you know, does that mean it looks good? I don't know. It looks right, I guess. I'm not saying it's, well, I am saying it's wrong, but on like an emotional level. <laughs> it offends you. It is you. an evil shit. Yeah. It's, it's not, I, I'm not saying the costume department fucked up. I'm saying they have done something to offend me personally. <laughs> it, it sounds like you see it almost as this Lovecraftian horror thing. Pretty much, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, who wears a hat that's bigger than their head? 
Why? I mean, by uh. definition, aren't all hats bigger than your head? Because otherwise, they would be. Anya, in- just, just. <laughs> <laughs> Give me this one thing. Okay, okay. I need this. <laughs> I didn't get a goose. <laughs> I need to hate this hat. So we we've talked a little bit before in past episodes about um, if they're gonna try and play up comparisons to current politics and like try and make things more relevant to our current world in the same way that American Gods has been doing. And Mm -hmm. if they were going to do something, I don't know, maybe it's just because I spent a bit of time today watching impeachment hearings, but like Jofra Ragnason, I feel like is an awful leader in all of the same ways that Trump is just an awful leader, like totally susceptible to flattery, not very smart, like his Mm -hmm. everything is about like his ego of being the king or the president or whatever you know and like demanding loyalty and fealty rather than actually earning it and when you go around demanding it like that like it's never going to be real right you know everyone is living in fear of you know the next awful tweet but that doesn't mean they actually respect you Mm -hmm. he is sort of shown as this um in the books as this sort of capricious leader he's very drunk with power he he kind of tr- tries to do what he wants but everyone around him is looking and going we mm, mm, i guess i'll play along for now which yeah just maybe it's just appropriate that it happens to echo the current state of politics across the western world which is a terrifying thing by the way should we <laughs> yeah <laughs> well it's just fascism yeah. or maybe there's yeah i was going to say maybe there's always just the assholes in charge we just to some degree at least <laughs> we weren't at quite as unlucky in the 90s depending mm. on where you live um, <laughs> do you remember differently I mean, unlucky maybe yeah i mean wasn't who who was president in the 90s i'm sorry i'm not i don't Bill Clinton. I have no idea oh okay when was bush president cuz he was terrible wasn't he he was elected in 2000 oh i know because i got suspended in middle school for vandalizing a poster of him did you have the snake on your head at the time? <laughs> you had a golden opportunity there to be the most metal bitch alive. Yeah. It's like the most Anya story. Yeah. That's what you call peaking in high school. It's on brand. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Shots fired. Well, with all of this political stuff, I did mm-hmm. notice um, a, a lot of uh, a philosophy called utilitarianism that I think probably Anya, you know about from uh, watching The Good Place, and it is definitely yes. like in line with this fascism, and um, but is is demonstrated here in a really interesting way, I think, um, because you have various heroic characters using utilitarianism uh as well as mrs coulter and the magisterium Uh, so i really liked this so to explain a little bit what utilitarianism actually is it is um a teleological philosophy have you guys ever heard of that yeah how do you spell (laughs) that it's Pretty sure I've seen a meme with that. (laughs) Teleology? I don't uh, know. We've talked a lot about that and um, all of Aristotle's terrible ideas. uh, May he burn in hell. And, um, but the the way that I've been talking about teleology has to do with like things. And in moral philosophy, teleology is about um, what you do. So instead of like 
does this phone do what a phone need to do to do a phone? Um, it is you worrying about, is my action that I'm doing going to achieve the goal that I am trying to achieve? And if it does, then the ends justify the means. Um, that's literally like kind of utilitarianism thing. And the ends there is the the telos. That's what telos means. It's like the reason or the ends. So that's why it's teleological. So like just as, as, a, as a, an example, there's like uh, a scenario called the dirty bomb scenario. And we're probably all familiar with this idea that there's like a bomb out there and you are in a room with the bomb maker. And if you torture them, then you will get the disarm code for the bomb. Uh, but if you don't torture them, then the bomb will explode and a, and a city will be, you know, atomized in a second. Uh, so do you torture them? And you can have like a moral actor in that scenario who says, uh, torturing people is wrong and lowers the human dignity of everyone involved. Uh, so therefore, I'm going to demonstrate moral courage in the face of this impossible choice and not torture this person and do the right thing. Or you could have somebody who's like a moral coward and says, you know, like, I think I probably should torture this person, but I can't bring myself to do it. Well, the outcome in both of those scenarios is that the bomb goes off. And according to utilitarianism, that means that you did the wrong thing. Uh, it doesn't matter if you had moral courage in the face of a choice or if you were a coward and couldn't do the thing that you thought you were supposed to do. You failed to stop the bomb from going off. And so your actions, teleologically speaking, were bad. So utilitarianism is focused on outcomes uh, instead of following rules or breaking rules, which other moral systems are more concerned with. What if, what if your reaction to having someone be tortured is to bring a small girl child and let her watch it. Yeah. <laughs> no, that no, that's a good definitely that's a good question. So you could okay. have a moral actor in that scenario who is you start to explain to them, so there's a dirty bomb and this and the person is already over there because they're sadistic torturing them. And and they're like, the code is one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, please stop. And they're like, yeah, I, I don't care about that. I'm just gonna I'm into I'm, torturing people. I'm just saying Lyra would watch the torture and be okay. <laughs> so it's like, you know, uh, in that case, the sadistic person who enjoys torturing people in front of little girls uh, would, because they stopped the bomb from going off, that would be good. It, it doesn't matter that they enjoy it. So if you try to if you try to stop the bomb going off, you make that moral decision that I will torture this person and I will try to try to get the codes, and you fail. T uh, utilitarianly, are you better or worse? Are there shades of grey here or mm, not really? Um, I mean, there's about like four dozen different kinds of utilitarianism for exactly this reason, because. Um, there is like the big origin of like utilitarianism comes from this fellow named Jeremy Bentham, a uh, famous Englishman. And he said the greatest good for the greatest number of people. That should be kind of your moral compass. Don't worry about like rules. You need to use your judgment about 
is what I'm doing going to help the most people possible? Uh, and then do that thing. Uh, well, the thing there is like, you know, the most number of people, that's pretty easy to understand and define. Uh, what's the most good? <laughs> that's that's much harder um, because that definition changes over time because maybe you believe that like uh, people burning in an eternal hell because they don't have a knowledge of Jesus Christ is a really bad thing. And so you're completely justified because your ends are to give them a knowledge of Jesus Christ uh, so that they can have an eternity in heaven and not burn in hell to invade their country and, you know, take all of their able-bodied men and put them in chains and make them slaves for your country so that you can give them a knowledge of Jesus Christ and they can spend eternity in heaven. Uh, those ends justify the means by which you did that. So what are Lyra's means and ends in this episode? I mean, she lies and tricks people to get Yorick to join their party. So the really uh, easy example here is probably um, with Lee. She eats all of his bacon. <laughs> so when we first... Unforgivable. When we first, no, that's smart. When we first meet Lee... But understandable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Unforgivable from Lee's perspective. Sorry. <laughs> I love how she Batmans out of there. He's like, and she's gone. Yeah. Okay. I think Lee appreciates it anyway. He's like, damn, you got me. Oh, yeah. He's, he's like, yeah. she's better at this than I am. She's a real good bacon stealer. <laughs> when we first meet Lee, he um, meets like the authority figure in the town, Sisselman, and he immediately steals his pocket watch. And then later in the episode, when he finds out that Yorick doesn't have his armor, he goes back to Sisselman and he very meticulously lays out the legal reasons why he is entitled to the armor. And so what you see there is that Lee is very comfortable operating outside of the law, but and but also operating inside of the law. And so he's not um, operating according to any kind of moral code that is defined by a system of rules that say, like, never work with the the authorities or um, always work within the law. He does whatever it takes to get the job done. This actually brought up a question that I had really, really quickly was, did, was Lee bluffing? Oh, yeah. Or did he oh, know all that the, stuff? Yeah, he forged that. The law yeah. stuff. I think so. Yeah. Sorry, what? What? I didn't catch your answer. I, I think he forged that. Like he did not. the The armor is not the Millennium oh, yeah. Falcon. He did not lose it in a game of cards. Like that's not what happened. I didn't even think Lee was trying to get the armor. I thought he was just trying to feel out the situation there by saying that mm -hmm. it was his. What What I was meaning was, were, was he just arbitrarily kind of bluffing with the quoting of statutes and you know specific paragraphs? Was he just saying? Well, you know, I sound like I know what I'm talking about, and so you, I, I believe that you don't know it well enough for me to get away with this. Or did he? Is he, is he actually a meticulous scholar of law? I felt like it was showing off a capability of his, but it, yeah, it could be a total bluff. But I felt like he was, you know, that he knew property law like that well because he's an independent operator and has to like, you know, he's his own lawyer basically. No, that's that's true. And we know that he is, you know, an engineer and a scientist in a way, right? Like he, well, I guess maybe we don't know this yet, but in the book we know that mm. he has to, you know, know chemistry so he can create his own gas 
right? right. Yeah. So it fits it fits with his character of of being like super capable and academic and detail oriented. Mm-hmm. So is he the new polymath? Yeah, basically. He's like the renaissance man, right? He's and and that's kind of what utilitarianism is all about, right? Like it's it's what you use any of your talents available to you uh and whatever the situation provides to get the job done because you're not governed by some kind of prescriptive moral code that says like no, you can never ever lie in any situation. If you need to lie or steal or murder to get the job done and you're comfortable with that, like utilitarianism says go for it as long as you accomplish your goal. And uh and you know, that's exactly what we see with Mrs. Coulter. She's not operating according to what you might expect the magisterium to do where it would have like a prescriptive uh, kind of moral system that says you need to submit to the authority of people who have been placed over you, you know, according to the authority of God. You know, if I say to stop and you're fired, then you stop and you're fired because that's that's what we're all about. We're all about rules in this place. Um, and she's not doing that. She is leveraging every advantage that she has in every situation to get the upper hand on people and achieve her goals. And I think that is something that we're more used to when we see utilitarianism is a kind of like villainous character who will cross any kind of moral boundary. And then usually the hero like lives by a code that kind of reinforces the norms of society and uh, and that's why we're you know meant to root for that character so that we root for law and order and and all of that kind of stuff. But this story really subverts that with like Lyra's behavior of um, you know submitting to authority once again. You got John Fa telling her, uh, "No, no bears. We're not doing that." And then she goes and gets <laughs> the bear anyway. And then she's like, "It's okay. It's for the best. You'll thank me later." So we're rooting for a character here who is not obeying, you know, authority and and the rules and stuff like that. And that's heroic. But at the same time, we have Mrs. Coulter doing the same thing and it's villainous. And that's pretty crunchy, I think. Yeah, except one of them is trying to rescue children and the others kidnapping them and trying to use them. And I love both of them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think that um, something that is starting here, because now, like you said, Anya, we're we're starting to get the Lyra that we're more familiar with from the books. What we're going to see going forward, I think, is an emerging theme of the difference in characters who operate according to the utilitarian values. The main difference here is that Lyra is not affiliated with an institution. And so her goals that she's trying to reach by any means necessary are informed by her personal conscience. While Mrs. Coulter's goals have to incorporate the magisterium's goals. And and the chiefest goal of any institution is going to be the survival of the institution itself. And so her goals are limited to goals that do not uh, interfere with the magisterium's, you know, larger survival or identity. And so that warps what 
she is capable of doing. So like in her case, she said in the previous episode, we have the chance to find out what dust is. And that seems to be what's animating her choices here around children who are not affected by dust. So that's what she's pursuing, but she has to do it in a way that the magisterium who wants no knowledge of dust to be available to people uh, can tolerate. And so it's warping her actions into and warping her personally uh, into the kind of person who like enjoys torture and murder and, and, and hates herself. Yeah. And I think there's a way of viewing the two of them as, as like Mrs. Coulter is what happens when you take someone like Lyra, who's very curious, very capable, and then don't give them opportunities to actually pursue any of that in a positive or like meaningful way. I don't know. I've always had a different view of Mrs. Coulter, but that's book Mrs. Coulter. So I don't, they're doing something different with, with show Coulter. Like I've, I've never thought she particularly cared about her research. It was all about power. It was all about power. In the show, I have no idea what her goal is. No, she's very, she, she's so much more emotionally connected in the show or maybe more mm-hmm. emotionally vulnerable in the show than she ever is in the books at these times. Mm-hmm. That's like a real, not terrifying, but like it's, it's a really poignant moment when you see that Mrs. Coulter all of a sudden she has feelings. She has her own stakes in this game. It's not just that she's arbitrary and she's a bad, bad person. She is, in fact, uh, you know, she's she's got skin in the game, and that's coming across a lot, lot earlier in these uh, in these shows. I still don't know what she wants, though. Like, mm-hmm. what? Why is she doing anything? And I don't. I'm not saying that as a criticism. I think I like that we don't really know what her number one goal is. Yeah. But I genuinely have no idea. Is it the research? I don't think so, because we haven't really seen her doing that. She seems to want to get away with things, but she doesn't seem to be vying for actual power. Mm-hmm. And she wants to have the know. ability to punish the people, you know, who, um, like she does at the Jordan College. Because she kind of goes too far there, right? Like, they're like, ah, you you made noise right, but that and could... all that kind of stuff, so. I don't think she cares about the Jordan College people, though. I think she just wanted to get what That's she what wanted I mean. to get. Like, and yeah. she didn't care. Yeah, she, she wants was. she wants the power think- to be like, oh, you you didn't give me what I wanted. Like, burn it down. Do you think she's just motivated by a feeling of competition with Azriel? I don't. I don't think so because we haven't seen her really even talk about Azriel. Like, I mean, like she's not- clearly bitter about him on some level, and. Oh, that's the know. realest shit we've was... seen from her is like when she's screaming about Asriel during the, you know, the scene where the two demons are fighting with each other and she's, yeah. Oh, yeah. She says that he's a bad father and all that like that I get. But we haven't seen her talk about him as relates to her goals and what yeah, she yeah. wants. Like we haven't seen her say Asriel's getting there before me. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Or anything like that. We But we've seen her. I would say she was upset that he has Lyra's loyalty and she doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yep. But that's a different that's a different part of her. But that's not then, the ablation board. Yeah. I would flip it and say possibly that the Asriel plays into the fact that she wants I, I think the power is her main driver 
And Asriel challenges that because he is just as competent. He is just as manipulative, frankly. He mm -hmm. is just as ruthless as Coulter, just in a very, in maybe a, on the right side, nominally, you know, not literally with the Nazis. <laughs> but, <laughs> sorry, they're, they're, it's a very, yeah. They're, they're, oh, no, they're Nazis, yeah. They're, like, they're very, very Nazi, yeah. uh, very fascist. But, um, yeah, the it feels to me not that Azriel is the goal, but Azriel is just something which challenges her and gets under her skin so constantly because he can do these things. He's the only one that she sees as his equal, and she hates that. That's kind of my reason. Yeah, I think that's what I was trying to say. I 100% agree with that. I just don't think we've seen it in the show. Mm, like, if we had never read the books, I don't think I think that's what there. I was trying to say, though, is what Francis said about the power of, like, she wants to be invulnerable in, in every situation. And so, like, when she went to Jordan College and she's like, tell me about the alethiometer, that... Um, that it, it was like, no, I'm not, you know, you fucked up, not me. And uh, and then she's like, fuck you. And, you know, and messed them up. Uh, and, and then it's the same when the Cardinal's like, you're fired. And then she sits down and is like, yeah, here's why that's not true. Uh, she, you know, so she never wants to be vulnerable. Like, even when she's on the way to Yofer, um, the monkey is like, hey, are we okay? And she's like, I got this. Like, I'm going to. I can I know exactly what to say and how to say it. It's I'm always in control. I'm always on top. And then yeah, when people like Azriel or Lyra, you know, who wants to have a genuine connection with her and not a connection that involves being dominated, you know, when cuz Lyra refuses to obey, therefore she has to, you know, attack her and and abuse her until she submits and instead Lyra escapes. Mm -hmm. She can't stand that. I do still dislike the fact that that makes this this whole thing makes us feel so much more for her demon, and I I don't feel yeah. that that's the point of that demon at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in in the books, I would say even when Mrs. Coulter shows other emotions, the demon is still just creepy as fuck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think that that says a lot about Mrs. Coulter that mm. even when she's like, actually, I do care. Her soul is still like, maybe I could just snap this bat in half. Thanks. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's he is the demon inside of her. Yeah. 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 What a crude analogy. <laughs> 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 well, I guess we'll just have to see where the TV show goes with her character. Yep. And this version of it. Uh, I did want to do another quick Moses connection. Uh, speaking of people who adhere to uh, a code of ethics, a strict code that changes what they want, uh, you know, like Moses never wants to do what he's supposed to do. And he, and he always um, submits to the rules that God lays down for him, which, um, you know, is the point of who Moses is. Because he's supposed to be the good example for the Hebrew people, like be like Moses. And Lyra here, you know, being a utilitarian instead of like someone who follows a strict moral code kind of illustrates that thing that I was talking about last time, Anya. And and you were like, I, what do you mean that he, she's a girl and he's a guy? Is that what you're saying? And that, you know, she operates even though she's a heroic moral character, the way that she operates in that morality is like deeply contrasted against someone like Moses, who I feel like the story is appropriating 
Moses in order to invert his archetype. Like it's it's a purposeful choice to, you know, reference Moses early in the story in order to subvert him. The way that I talked about last time, Moses appropriated as a character, he appropriated the persona of uh, Sargon the Great and inverted um, his character where Sargon the Great was like all about murdering people and uh, dominating them with his martial ability. Uh, Moses murders one person and lives with a lifetime of regret over that um, outburst of anger. And then after that is a pious follower of God and does stops doing whatever he wants to do and does whatever God wants him to do. So he inverts the Sargon archetype and Lyra in turn inverts the Moses archetype in the way that she operates morally. And that's, I don't think that's an accident. Like that's how you do it. This is why you adapt these archetypes is to, you know, express the values of our culture in our own time. Yeah. I feel like we need another meme now for Moses and teleology together. <laughs> is this Moses? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to lighten things up a bit, I'm going to bring up a- another thing that I had a small problem with, the bar fight. Hester's just like uh, sitting there. No, like, she's giving him instructions. She was very don't helpful. Don't get me wrong. I loved her commentary, <laughs> but if this were the book... Hester would be laying down some other demons. She would be taking them out. Yeah. And why weren't the other demons attacking her? She was just like sitting on the bar wide open Mm -hmm. in plain view. Where were the demons anyway? Yeah, I did wonder like why were the other demons also not providing hilarious and helpful commentary for their humans? (laughs) You couldn't hear them in their pockets. They just weren't funny. It, sh- it would should have been. It's like WrestleMania, where you have like the Spanish announce table and the Russian announce table and the Japanese announce table, just like all the demons sitting there with their little microphones, uh, narrating. Just looking at each other like, "No, nah, we're not doing this." Yeah. <laughs> all the demons were like, "This is stupid. We're we're just sitting this one out." They're all at a little table with cards of their own, playing demon poker. <laughs> it's like the dogs around the table. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's good. But really though, they should have been fighting yeah. too. Yeah, that's true. And I I understand that the answer to that is mm-hmm. money. But yes, still. But it would have been such a good spectacle and then you'd see It would have been. And then Hester stops being this like Lee's hype man, which she is, but like she's also a formidable fighter in her own right. And yeah, she has exactly. to be. Which... And also, it brings it back to my whole questions about, like, can we please study demons? Because in the book, she's, like, ripped up a bit. Mm. Yeah. And has scars and stuff. And I'm like, how... Somebody needs to explain to me how that happens. Do demons bleed? Do demons get hurt? I need answers. Mm. <sighs> or did she just settle that way because Lee's soul was that way? Okay, so I know that you can't actually answer this outside of the spoiler section. But I feel like we should at least mention... The fact that Mrs. Coulter's question to the alethiometer is, like, super weird and creepy. Like, the who is Lyra Balakwa? Yeah. Because, obviously, I, like, it's her own daughter. She should know. Like, what does that yeah. mean? I, and I loved his reaction. He was like, shouldn't you of yeah. people? <laughs> and then he, she was like, just ask the question. It's not always that I feel like the 
weird magisterium characters are channeling my reaction as a viewer, but that was one time where it was like, yep, spot on. Like, shouldn't you know? I'm, I'm, I hope we get to hear the answer. I'm very interested to see what the alethiometer says to her or says to Fra Pavel. And then, you, you, oh, you know, I want to say this, uh, this thing about that particular character, actually, um, because we get an implication with his interaction with Lord Boreal that he has some kind of deep, dark secret, his predilections, as uh, Lord Boreal is saying. And um, it made me think of an episode that we did on uh, Hollow Ground Storycast about. And the band played on, which um, was about the AIDS crisis. It's um, a a nonfiction book made into uh, a movie for HBO and the AIDS crisis in in the 1980s. Reading that book uh, illuminated something to me that I had never thought of before. But in it, it like tracks uh, like the political side of the crisis in the gay community and um, one of the people in the unfolding crisis is um, closeted. And because he is closeted, he is available for extortion um, by his political enemies and the people who are allowing the AIDS crisis to blossom to, you know, basically exterminate gay people in America, like intentionally. And so it would be in his own interest and in the, you know, the interest of his constituency and, and all of this stuff to like oppose what was going on with the Reagan administration. But when they come to him and they're like, if you don't cooperate with us, then we're going to reveal your dirty little secret. Then he becomes complicit with, with their desires. And it felt like Lord Boreal is saying the same thing to the alethiomistrist or however you say that. Pavel. Right. And and was like, you're going to give me a freebie or I'm going to tell everybody, you know, what you do. I interpreted that completely. Well, it's just it just made me think of that, that when you are not authentically like the reason to come out of the closet, I had always felt like was to be like authentically yourself. But in a weird way, when you don't have skeletons in your closet, you can't be manipulated. And I mean, like, that's not possible all the time because you might be destroyed for being your authentic self. But, you know, it is an interesting. OK, I thought his authentic self was a pedophile. I thought that That is also like when when I started talking to this uh, whole situation with Christina, she was like, yeah, that guy's a pedophile. And I was like, that's what I thought, too. I think especially with the whole like religious organization wearing that mm-hmm. outfit like that's the the implication i i i got to admit my immediate thing was oh he's gay mm-hmm. really Which, yeah but that that's doesn't... an interesting that all three women thought he was a pedophile and the two dudes <laughs> yep, thought he yep. was gay oh no I, I also thought he was a pedophile oh okay, okay i thought he was i just thought it was both and it was it was kind of just being like you're generally you know People don't like these sorts of things, but it almost felt to me like they weren't really making a distinction. They didn't really care what it was. They just cared that it had power. Mm-hmm. I didn't believe that anyone right. actually cared that he was doing bad right. things until they needed right. to. No, I don't think anybody cared either. I, I thought that they were going for the sort of a subtle nod to how, you know, in recent years, actual priests have been discovered to be very yeah abusing children uh, you know in the people. way the that's what this story is about yeah. is, a, is a religious institution victimizing children and you know if you're gonna do that you should do it 
And and I think that to bring this theme into the story is good. Victimized children. No, you, you're like if you're gonna, gonna say, wait, yeah, <laughs> do it right. Sure? I mean, good. Yeah. <laughs> no, but if you're gonna put that in the story, just come out and no, say no, it. no, no. Like I like that they're bringing this theme into it. And, and, you know, that is not present necessarily in the book. But, like, if you're going to criticize the Catholic Church and you're going to say, like, this story is about victimizing children, like, bring that element into it that is a real part of a lot of people's lives, you know? Mm. Yeah. Well, and I totally get what you're saying, both in terms of that and in in the way that, like, being closeted can make you vulnerable to extortion. Mm -hmm. But also there's like a long history of conflating homosexuality and pedophilia. And I want to just be explicitly clear that we are not doing that. One of those is a natural part of the human experience and the other is a fucking crime. So Mm. well put. Yeah. Um, Succinct. Okay. I did just want to do a very brief point out that when Lyra's looking at the Northern Lights and she says what makes it look like that. She makes it very obviously, uh, sorry, she makes it very obvious that she does not listen to our show. Oh, yeah. we have gone in depth <laughs> why the Northern Lights are the way they are. And she should get on that. Yeah. Wait, so Absolutely. with these magnetic hats on the earth, um, oh, are there, are there any- that is a reference to an earlier <laughs> stupid thing that I said. No, he knows. <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> oh okay okay <laughs> but have you have you looked at the uh have you looked at the stitching on these magnetic hats oh i see what you're saying um not yet that's like down the line <laughs> okay noted <laughs> earth hats are later after i solve this lyra hat problem <laughs> sorry i couldn't help myself no that's fair okay so that's it for today Um, Next time, we'll be talking about episode five, The Lost Boy, which is spelled the same way in American and British English. (laughs) If you'd like to avoid spoilers, then it's time to say goodbye. Uh, And if you like our- The Lost Buoy would be a very different episode. (laughs) (laughs) Why is this buoy here? (laughs) 45 minutes of just an ocean camera. (laughs) Hope you don't get seasick. If you like our show, please take some time and leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at Francis Windrum. That is W-I-N-D-R-A-M. All right, and thanks so much uh, for being on the show, Francis. This is great. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, guys. I've really, really enjoyed myself. Uh, you can follow all right. the show on Twitter at MOTPod. Uh, so you can live tweet uh, on Monday nights, uh, HBO 9 Eastern Standard Time. Need more than 280 characters to speak your mind? Send your emails to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. And now we're going to talk about some spoilers. Everyone's special! Okay, so I know I've talked about the goose a lot, but I but you're did good. also just want to say that they cut out his whole exposition about other worlds and things oh, yeah. to Lyra mm. which I guess we don't really need since they decided to just show us the other worlds but I feel like they're cutting out a lot of the sciencey aspects of the book and I miss it. And also Lyra doesn't know it right now. Yeah. 
which is I mean, she's like, seen the other world through the Northern Lights, but I guess yeah, that's she, not the same thing. I mean, she could have just eaten something funny, like some bad rye bread. Great. <laughs> 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 <Like>, just saying. <laughs> like, if you see if you see a city in the clouds, you're not gonna think there's a city up there. You're gonna think I'm going mad. Yeah. So. I guess it's not that important, really. Cause, and also, they could work it in later when we do meet Serafina. Yeah, that's what I um, expect. Yeah. But do we know who has been cast as Serafina? Oh, yeah. She looks great. Mm-hmm. There's pictures. I think oh, I okay. retweeted that whenever it came out. Do I remember her name oh, off the top no. of my head? No. no. She's no. like a waifish lady. That, yeah, she looks good. Looks like a cool costume and stuff. And then when they went to see the witch console... The witch console did not discuss Lyra's destiny with yeah, Carter Quorum. I noticed that too. I love that guy. He's he's always mm. good in everything. He did a great job. But yeah, it was weird. They left that out. Yeah, he was he was yeah. really good. I liked him. Just in the books, slight spoiler for book three, like Lyra overheard that and you don't find out until book three. But she overheard them talking mm. about her. Oh, so and what she, she had to do her destiny. Oh, that she had to she knew that she would have to betray somebody. Was that the uh no, not yeah. the betrayal. I don't think they talk about that that he, oh. i don't remember he doesn't give um, anything away there's really. so many prophecies i just can't yeah keep them all but straight. they talk about her having to bring about the end of destiny or whatever it was oh yeah that one mm. okay and she does overhear that again it's not that big of a deal because i don't think it would change any of the s- decisions that she makes in book three but just things that they changed and then yeah the who is lyra question from mrs coulter is very interesting because that doesn't really come up for her until right. book two. And then she tortures some witches for that answer. So well, it'll, I, I don't know what. I'm very intrigued to see what the elite says about I who is Lyra. That, I thought that that did. That like independent. It didn't have anything to do with Mrs. Coulter. I thought the alethiometrist did come out and say like, this is what's up. Yeah, well, we don't meet Fra Pavel in the books until book okay. three. Mm, yeah, that's right. So... I feel like in the books, it is said that all the other alethiometers are, have been destroyed. Okay. Like they say that in book one, and then you don't find out until book three that that is a lie either, or at that point, people are going through worlds willy-nilly. So either they found one in a different world. They're definitely not a retcon. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's been a long time. It's been almost like 20 years. So it's interesting. Like the things that I do remember and that I don't, I, I yeah, I remember... One of the Magisterium guys talking about what the answer to that question is, and it's interesting. But yeah, the Magisterium does have to know because otherwise they don't send the assassin right. after yeah. her. Oh God, yeah, you're right. There's yeah, there's there's some things they're gonna have to kind of paste together in some manner. I'm not sure how they'll do it, but I'm sh- like, we'll see, we'll see. I am intrigued to see. I really want to know what the Alethiometer says and what they tell Mrs. Coulter. I hope they don't just not go back to that because everything's in the North now. That would mm. suck. Mm. That's a good point. I mean, even if they get the answer, how are they going to tell her? Yeah. Do they have, like, telegraphs or something? It's unclear exactly what technology exists. It is very unclear. It's like there are vehicles, but not too many vehicles. Yeah. There's a skidoo I saw. Mm-hmm. I was like, hmm. <laughs> Wait, what's a skidoo? It's like a snow... Like a snow tank. Mobile? It's like a jet ski, yeah. but for snows. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> I knew what it was. I knew the thing you were talking about. <laughs> Motorized skis yeah. with a seat. I've I literally know. never heard of that before. It's a brand name. It's like right. Hoover. Right, right, right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Also not a word I use, but sure. 
Kleenex? Yeah, same thing. Other than that, I didn't, I didn't, there wasn't much about future, there wasn't much spoilery This is all set up. stuff in this episode. It was, yeah. yeah, it was all set up. So, yeah. Oh, it, interesting, fun, random fact. I'm not sure if you guys have actually talked about this, but um, you know the place where, where, when he goes to the rift, I can't even remember what his name is. Uh, Boreal? Boreal, yeah. When Boreal goes to the rift and he comes out in Oxford. That's not actually mm-hmm. in Oxford at all. It's in Cardiff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That blew my mind because I thought I I go to Oxford really quite often. Um, and I th- I was like, I swear I've been to that place. I swear I've been to that street. Nope. Nope. It's in Wales. Hmm. They just got the buses to write the word Oxford on top. and Yeah, literally just changed change the site. Well, because the B-roll footage is all from Oxford. Like, that's, oh, okay. that's yeah. notably central Oxford. But okay. yeah, it foxed me and um, my housemate who had lived in Oxford for five years. And he was like, yeah, I swear I've been there. Yeah, They they just did it so, so well. <laughs> That's funny. Like, I watched a, a bunch of movies in the early 2000s uh, when Louisiana was like, had all kinds of tax breaks for people to come film their movies there. And then the movie would say like, oh, we're set in Tennessee or Georgia. I'd be like... Yeah, I know that street in Baton Rouge that you're on right now. I know exactly where you're at. <laughs> I mean, I beat all of you. I live in Vancouver. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> I have literally taken a bus to work and all the signs around me say San Francisco. Right. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? And then there's like a crushed cop car under some big ass cement. And it's like, great, I'm going to be late to work because Godzilla's here. <laughs> great. Wonderful. Again. Again, yeah. Speaking of yeah, sets, yeah, again. <laughs> um, you know that whale, the what am I trying to say? Trollisons is also mm-hmm. obviously in Wales, and mm-hmm. they so a lot of the ice was apparently like wax, yeah, and and just like you know fake ass snow like you normally do. Like the whole thing was just a a set. I guess they com- built from scratch in a completely uninhabited area. I think it was quite it was quite interesting to see how firstly how much it looked like a sort of Icelandic or Nordic town or like fishing village, oil port, whatever you want to call it. But also when you looked really closely you could see how they just thought about it such that, you know, the place that they set it meant they didn't have to do very much of that um, you know, that sort of fake snow, fake ice, which is hard mm-hmm. to do. Because they filmed it in such a way where there's gonna be there's always gonna be like quite a lot of heat around places like anywhere with forges um mm-hmm. it was it was all set in this town right up until they were actually going out it was all the very kind of sort of turn of the century industrial landscape and so just just by cleverly thinking about how they how they showed the whole area they managed to massively reduce their costs and still make it a very effective show of this is this place yeah it was a very well done i'll be interested to see how they do like the village that we have to go to in the next episode and oh, yeah. all the snow that they have to go through. Yeah. All that yeah, wax. The, the episode title leaves very little to the imagination for what's happening next. I mean, I guess a lot of the episode titles. Yeah. Not. It's just so, a bad rehashing of Peter Pan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you're uh, placing bets on whether it's going to be Billy Costa or not? I think it is because apparently on the HBO showing or maybe the bbc i don't i don't remember which one there's there was like of at the end of the first episode there was like a preview for the whole season Mm -hmm. bbc once and it showed the egyptians with like lighting a big pyre and i think Mm -hmm. ma costa is still there 
It, it was like when you watch a trailer and it's literally yep. the film. Yeah. They're exciting. They're well edited, but it's like, whoa. Oh my oh, God. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. You're not, it's not sneaky at all. Well, no, we were all sitting around saying, when's this going to end? This is just like another five minutes of mm-hmm. show. I'd rather have five minutes of show. <laughs> so we will see you all next week. And don't forget to steal all the bacon from your new friend. Men died to not spell it that way. (laughs) I mean, not... Whatever. (laughs) That's what it was about. (laughs) The stupid views. Yeah, sometimes I think Pullman, who gets a lot of questions about how demons work when he's writing these things, is just like, well, let's just really fuck with them. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I agree with that.